listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Amen. Hello, church. You're awake. This is going to be a good Sunday, I can tell already. Uh, I am so glad you're here. If you are new, my name is Simon. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. Shake your hand. Say hello. Um, some good news for all of you that have been trying to dig up dirt on me. I know that you all want to have something to you know, get me on. My buddy Andy's here. I went to high school with him. So if you really want to know who I was and the work that Jesus has done, talk with Andy. He will tell you all the bad things about me. And then you can redecide as we vote for our elders if you're not going to get rid of your pastor. So. Uh, we are currently in our series in Titus. We're going to be in chapter 2. If you want to know where we're going to be today, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Um, when I was growing up, and even today, one of my favorite times has always been dinner time with the family. Uh, at my house growing up, any subject was on the table, literally and figuratively. We talk about anything. That goes for us today at our house. We have crazy conversations. It's almost kind of like for us, the... Uh, the dinner table is the tell the adventures that you went on today. Figure out what happened. What did you learn? What did you hear? What did you see? And we talk about that. And, and I love doing that with our boys. Uh, I love, they get to, they, they're always trying to challenge me in other areas. My son's like always asking me these really hard questions to stump the pastor kind of questions. And yesterday he's like, has anyone ever asked you this? And I'm like, no, no one has ever asked me that. That's a new one. And so I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, but really what's going on is we're talking about the world. We're talking about God. We're talking about um, how Jesus applies to any given situation. And so we talk about the hardships that we go through. We talk about the victories that we go through. We talk about the things that bad choices that we made or that we wish we did this. And then we get to kind of walk together in that. And really what we're doing at the dinner table, we have those moments. It's everyday discipleship, right? We're really kind of saying, hey, this is uh, what you experience in being in a broken, fallen world. And this is what Jesus says that. And so what we start to do is we move from just a, a head knowledge or a book knowledge of what God's Word says into the practical application of what it means to follow and worship Jesus. And that's really what Paul's going to do. As he talked about leaders last week, he's going to start talking about what does the family of God look like? How do they function? What do they do when they gather, when they serve, when they spend time together, and how we should continue to grow God's church and what that looks like? And really what we see is it says, you're a new family. And when this new family goes out into the world, it's taking the gospel into the wild. And that's really what we're doing. We're unleashing the gospel into a fallen, broken world so they would see and understand who Jesus is. And so as he kind of talks about this, we spoke last week and it ended in verse 16. It talked about the Cretans and how they weren't fit for any good work. All right meaning that the gospel's supposed to transform you and change who you are, and yet these leaders that were there were not transformed. And he's saying, hey, let me show you what a transformed community looks like and what those individuals should be doing. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Titus 2, verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, there is Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those, use one of those. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, I would love for you to take that, keep it, and just have God's Word so you can have it at your home or you can follow along on the screen. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger uh, young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into uh, this section of Scripture. Jesus, thank you for this beautiful picture of what your church looks like. Lord, I want to thank you for the gift of discipleship, that you are allowing us to be a part of your mission, uh, a part of what you've called us to do, that you've, as we grow in the knowledge and wisdom of your true word, that we would then impart that to others so that they could grow and they could impart that to others as well. Lord, as we want to see this next generation of men and women love and worship you, you have laid out the principles that take place for that. Holy Spirit, is there anything that uh, I am going to say today that is going to be a distraction to your gospel, if it's going to be counterproductive to what you want to do in the hearts of men and women, that you would take that from my mind, from my notes, uh, and that we would honestly just submit and sit under your authority. If there's anything that you want me to say that I haven't prepared in advance, that you would give me the ability to trust you and to step out in faith and say what needs to be said to the congregation that's here this morning. I love you. Pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So the pattern that is going to be followed in this section of Scripture, if you like to have patterns and know where we're going, it's going to, we're going to talk about older men and older women. Then we're going to shoot over to younger women and uh, younger men. And then we're going to talk about slaves and the idea of what it means in the workforce and what that looks like. So those are the three topics that Paul is going to address for Titus as he pours into this congregation on the island of Crete. So we're going to start with older men and women. And so this idea is really the idea of pouring into others as we look at what this looks like. Um, and the proper place that he starts is with older men and women, the people who have experienced and have lived some life that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, that have been worshiping God, that have gone, gone through the ups and the downs of life and what that looks like. Uh, and they understand what things are good and what things are bad and what they've learned and how to impart that ultimately. He's going to lay a foundation, and it's really the kind of the, the mega theme through the entire section of this letter, which is sound doctrine. If, if we are going to do anything properly, we have to be rooted in sound doctrine. And that doctrine is God's word. We're going to say it over and over and over again. This is why I preach from the Bible. This is why our Bible studies do Bible studies in the Bible. This is why our life group readers, uh, leaders, they open up the Bible, because this is what we need to stand on. Ground zero is right here. We have to start here. If we don't start here, the foundation is bad and it will disintegrate ultimately. And so what we see is that real discipleship, as we talk about it, has to and will start with sound doctrine as we move forward. And we're going to see that this, this doctrine or the gospel isn't meant to be contained in a lab. 
Yeah, we, you know, we think of viruses as a bad thing because normally they really are and they cause havoc in what we're talking about. But as I was thinking about the best way to describe the gospel and what Paul is talking about the gospel, virus is probably the best way that once it gets out, you can't put it back in the bottle. And when Jesus came and died and gave his life for everyone, it spread in the world. They saw the love of God and they've been, people have been trying to contain it forever. And they can't, can they? And that's kind of what a virus is. It moves out and it touches the lives of others to where they start to see the love of God in their own lives. And so what it says is this, is older men is going to give us a list of things that an older man should have in his life, especially if he's going to be teaching and communicating the truths of God to younger men in, in the church. The first one is that he's sober-minded. This idea of not being given to extreme behaviors is probably the, the best way that that translates out. It says that they would be dignified. This idea of dignified means uh, being worthy of esteem or respect, especially on account of one's behavior. So they live in a way that is actually worthy of the respect that people would bestow upon them, that they live their life with a certain kind of honor, that they hold to that truth, and that drives and dictates where they go. We, we talk about this idea of being dignified, but it, when you give people respect, it usually tends to be people that you're sort of drawn to, isn't it? There's something about that individual that you're like, I don't know what it is I like about that person, but I'm just, I'm just sort of drawn to them, and you tend to give a lot of respect to people that you're drawn to. And he's saying that there is a respect in your life that leads this kind of behavior. It says self-controlled. Now, here's what's crazy. Paul is going to use the term self-controlled three times in this one little 10-verse section. Anytime you see a word of repetition take place in the Bible, there's a reason why that's there. God wants you to focus in on that, and it actually impacts all the other areas, and self-control becomes a big part of that. Now, I believe that what Paul is doing in this letter as he's writing this is he's actually alluding to a statement that was made last week that he, that he said. He said, all Cretans are what? Liars, always liars, gluttons, and evil beasts. So not in that order, but that's what he says. And he's like, and it's true. And so he, he kind of lays this idea out of who they are. But I think what he's doing is a little bit of this. He's, he's kind of like poking fun at the evil beast thing that he just talked about. And, and so here's why I think that. To, to not have self-control means that you are turned over to the impulses that come upon your heart, right? So when you don't have self-control, you say, well, I want this, so I'll go do this, or I want that, so I'll go get that, or I'm going to take this because I want that. And so there are impulses that come into our heart at times, good or bad, and we can either decide to embrace those and move into them or not. You know what happens when you just let your impulses drive you? There's a creature on, on the earth that acts like that. Animals. I want to eat you, so I will eat you. I want to procreate with you, so I will do that whether you like it or not. Like, the, 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 the impulses of an animal, they just do what they feel. We were made differently. We are not made the same. We, God made all the creatures of the earth, and he says, and he made man and woman different in the image of God that there is something unique and different about who we are, that we have the ability to have self-control in our hearts. We're not animals. And Paul's really saying, don't act like an animal. Act like a human being. And he says that there's sound in faith. This idea of, we talked about this last week, uh, that they know the gospel. They know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are sound in what Jesus did. And they are in submission to what Jesus calls them to also. 
It says they're sound in love. And, and this idea of being sound in love is the example set before us by who? Jesus Christ. That he was the perfect example of God's love incarnate walking amongst us. And so that they would have a love that flows from them that actually makes you think of or reflect Jesus Christ, as well as his forgiveness that he showed to others. And then it says these older men should be sound in steadfastness. That's a weird term that we don't use very often. Steadfast or endurance. It's the power to withstand hardship or stress, especially the inward fortitude necessary. You know what he's saying? These older men that I'm talking about and what they look like have gone through hardship. They've gone through trials. They've gone through stressors. They've been tempted, yet they did not buckle in their faith. They did not deny the faith that they endured through the hardship that took place. That these are the kind of men that God wants in his church. Older, mature men in the church. And then he moves to older women. And he says this, that they should be reverent. As I looked up that word, it's a, it's a very interesting word. If you, if you look at what it says, I have the definition here. Reverent or priestly is actually the, 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 the word that's used there. Characteristic of the deportment or the activities of someone performing religious duties and ceremonies to a deity. You're like, that is different. What, what does that even mean? It means that this woman, this older woman, does everything as though she's doing it unto the Lord that everything she does, she sees as a service to God in what she does. From how she speaks, to how she dresses, to how she works, to how she raises her kids, to how she, you know, cleans the kitchen, to uh, making sure her husband is looking not like a fool. Any, any one of those things, I'm doing all of this as unto the Lord. Like, I am about the Lord's work. I want to live my life in a way that honors God with every single thing that I do. That's a pretty awesome woman. This is not slanderous. Uh, this idea of slanderous is characterized by attacking the reputation of another by slander. Um, not a gossip. Not a busybody. Not someone whose desire is to tear others down by talking negatively about them so that they can then lift themselves up. Isn't that kind of how that works? I'm going to gossip about you so you'll look horrible, and by retrospect, I'll look great. That's sort of what gossip really does. Uh, there's a, a theologian that I was reading this week, and uh, they gave this particular quote. It says, if someone talks bad about others to you, then they are talking bad about you to others. Great theologian that I've studied before. <laughs> She's been saying that for forever. And you know what's crazy? It's true. If your friends talk bad about their friends, what do you think they're doing when you're not around? They are tearing you down to lift themselves up. And so that's why he's addressing this idea. They're not going to be slanderous towards other people. Not slaves to wine, uh, to be dominated or controlled by wine or strong drink. It's, we have to have wine to have a good time. Like that's, maybe you've talked to someone like that. If there's no wine, we can't have fun. This is the, this is the gateway to joy. We need to embrace this. We can't have a party without it. We talked about this when we talked about leaders, this idea of not being controlled by anything, didn't we? See, when you are relying upon drink to determine your mood, what you're saying is I need something else to have control over my life to allow me to have joy, happiness, fulfillment, whatever it is. 
And when you're doing that, you're saying no to the Holy Spirit, who is the only one that you're supposed to be filled with, and you're allowing something else to fill you. And when you do that, it's amazing how the old flesh comes out in those moments, isn't it? Because that's what you truly desire. It's saying don't have anything that controls you in that way other than the Holy Spirit. It says teach good. Teach what is good, good for life, good for character, good for others. And as we talked about last week, we know where this idea of the definition of good comes from. The plumb line that we said that comes from good is only from God, right? When, they, when Jesus was approached by someone, says, oh, good teacher, says, only God is good. So if only God is good, what God says is good, that is what we have for our plumb line when it comes to understanding goodness. So you know what this tells me? That this older woman teaches what's good because she knows what's good, which means she reads her she knows God's word. So it's a godly woman who understands the things of God, what he says, what is good, what is right, what is perfect, and what is bad and dangerous for us. And that she is to teach that so that others would know as well. Now, who is, who is she supposed to teach? To train younger women, to train them up, to be doing what they need to do. This is, this is discipleship. That these older women that have gone through life, that have these character traits, would be pouring in to younger women so they could grow up into the same way. That's what he's saying. We're talking about discipleship. My wife, Annette, has done um, ministry with women pretty much for as long as I've known her. She's always been investing in other women. She loves to do this. She used to do a study called Titus 2. And I'm like, oh, that's fun. You're going to study the chapter of Titus 2. Sounds great. And then she finished that semester and next semester said, oh, what are you teaching? I said, Titus 2. I said, you just taught on that. And then I didn't think anything of it. And then the next semester I said, what are you teaching? I'm like, Titus 2. I'm like, how can you be in that for so long? So it's the principle, you moron. I'm like, oh, that makes sense now. She didn't call me a moron. I just, that was the Simon version. She doesn't do that. But the idea is this, is that older women are constantly training up younger women to grow in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and what's been going on. And I will tell you this, where we have always seen this tremendous fruit has come from these areas where my wife has walked with other women. Some know Jesus uh, a little bit, some know Jesus a lot, some don't know Jesus at all. And they have come and they have been transformed by hearing God's truth and what God's word says about life and those women have come to faith, those women have been baptized, and then all of a sudden the husband's like, what did you do to my wife? She's so different and in a good way. And then they start coming. And as those guys start coming, I start talking with them. I have gotten to baptize so many husbands and so many wives based off the simple principle of discipling others and showing them what God's word says about life. It's not Annette's good advice. It's not Simon's good advice. It's God's word is what we actually use, the foundation of everything. It's what transforms lives. So my second point is young women and men and this idea of learning from others. So if you're talking about the first one is pouring into others, this one is learning from others. What are they supposed to teach these younger women that they would be trained up for the good works that God has for them? And what we're talking about is how the gospel always works in community. The foundation of the gospel is about community. And you're like, well, what do you mean? Well, let me, let me sketch it out a little bit for you. We were in relationship with God the Father, right? In the Garden of Eden, all the way back. And everything was perfect. And we walked with God. We spent time with God. He blessed us. He provided for us. And then we decided, hey, we want to do life on our own. We don't need you. We're going to make our own choice. This tree is going to give us all sorts of great things. And all it brought was death. 
And so what ends up happening is what? That community was what? It was fractured. It was, it was broken. That community no longer existed. And so from that point on, we were away from God, separate from God. But God knows that only true real life comes from being in relationship with him, in his presence, under his authority and rule and reign. And so God pursues us. We don't pursue him. He pursues us so that we would be back in that community. And he sends his son to live the life that we couldn't live, that said no to sin when the temptation was brought up that showed what it looks like to honor God with every aspect of his life that we were supposed to. And then because he loves us, he says, I'm going to take your punishment, the wrath, the rebellion that you had, and I'll put that on myself as a substitution for you. I will go on that cross and I will take what you rightfully earned and deserved so you won't have to. And then through that, anyone that calls in the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior will receive his righteousness and now we can be back in proper relationship with God in community the way that we were meant to. So the gospel is for us to be with God. And that's the, uh, the vertical relationship that we have. But it doesn't stop there. The gospel doesn't just stop with just us and God. We think that sometimes, but that's not what he's given us. Because he gave us what? This thing with a big capital C called the... I already gave you the first letter. It's church! It's church! <laughs> he gave us... <laughs> I would have taken other Christians as well. I also would have received that. <laughs> he gives us the church that as we function together, that we show what this vertical relationship does and how it affects the horizontal relations that we interact with as well. And so as we are in community with God, we are now in community with God's family. We're all brothers and sisters. You're like, well, yeah, but we fight and bicker. And I did with my brothers growing up in my house. And you probably did with your sisters or your brothers, right? That happens. Life creates friction. We're different people. But what we do with that is show how the gospel interacts in all of those broken situations at different times. And then we get to take that gospel into the wild and the rest of the world to see as well. And so then, what does Paul tell Titus that these older women should teach these younger women? The first one I think is great. Love your husband and love your children. If you are married... You, and, you, and if you have kids, you should, be, you should have love and devotion should be towards your family. That's what it should be. Not towards other things. Not chasing after things that, that aren't as valuable. But to be an example of the church and Jesus. We talked about that last week in Ephesians 5, didn't we? We talked about this idea of like God has given us marriage to be a representation of Jesus and the church and how they function and what they look like. So as we interact in our marriages, it is meant to actually reflect what God has done with Jesus and the church. That's, that's the purpose of what it looks like. It's a great way that he's given it to us as well. Then he says, again, be self-controlled. Moderate. Wise, keeping self-control over one's passions and desires. See, the older woman knows that if you allow yourself to chase after your passions and desires, where that leads. Because she's experienced it. She's gone through it. She's, she's made those poor decisions in life and said, man, if I just wouldn't have done that. Saying, if left unchecked by truth, it will cause heartache and brokenness and pain and destruction in your life. You must be self-controlled. It says be pure. This, the word pure is really kind of like broken down as without fault. It's not saying that we're perfect. Um, 
through the Holy Spirit, we have been purified. Through Jesus' work on the cross, we have been purified. We have been made pure. Last week, we talked about the idea, for those that are pure, all things are pure. Meaning that as we have been saved and we've been given a new heart and the Holy Spirit, our desire is for the things of God. And so we actually strive after those things that we would live those out. And that's one of the things that we would see in the life of these young women, that they would be showing what it means to have a pure heart and to chase after the things of God. Now, the next one may be controversial, and, and I'm sure your life gives off a, a really fun time talking about the next one, but it says working at home. Um, it is such an interesting thing if you start to look at what God is doing in this passage and what he's saying. I'm not saying you can't work. I, don't, don't hear those things. Don't let like all these weird lies from the culture like seep in right now. It, it seems very counterintuitive. It seems very um, uh, countercultural, but let, just hear what I'm saying here. God has given us a responsibility to pour into that which is eternal. So when he's talking about Wives, uh, desire you to stay at home is the idea like, what's going to last? Money, career, or human beings? Not saying it's wrong to work. It's not what I'm saying, okay? But I am saying that he's saying, there's there's something that I've given you here. Now, when Annette and I, um, when we decided we wanted to have kids, and not everyone gets to make that decision when they have kids, sometimes you're like, hey, we had a kid. Uh, Sometimes it's 10 years later, you're like, oh, I had another kid. Uh, That happens, right? But when we were talking about having children, my wife uh, was working at a very high level in a a corporate job, doing very good work and making a lot more money than me than a, a very long time. And I was working as well. We made a decision. We said, we want to honor God with our children. We wanted to, to do this in a way um, that, that we see in Scripture that God calls us to, and we made a very conscious decision that Annette was going to stay home. Do you know why? Because I didn't want anyone else in the world to raise my children other than my wife. Because I wanted my children to have the imprint of my wife on their life in some way, shape, or form. I didn't want it to be somebody else. I didn't want someone else's ideology, somebody else's thought process. I wanted them to know and feel the nurture and the care of their mom. Like, here's the thing. Like, I'm, there's great caretakers out there. But most aren't going to die for another child. My wife would gladly lay her life down for any of my children. And she wants them to know truth and wisdom. She wants them to know God. She cares for them with every bit. She sacrifices of herself so they can be who God has called them to be. And so I just said, I just can't think of anyone else that would be better than my wife to do that. And I, I love my boys, and I think that you see, and it, the compliments I get from my kids, I just go, well, she, they have a great mom. <laughs> they really have a great mom. Think about this. In all of God's wisdom, as God knows all, he's all present, he's all powerful. When he sent his son to come to live on earth, what did he do? He said, the best thing for my son is to be raised in a home by a woman in the house. Ever think about that? What an honor it is that God has given to women that have children to raise those kids. God saw the value in it for his son. He never asked us to do something he's not willing to do himself. And, and, I, and I love this too. Like, the, here's something that I think is really important. It's not just for moms. 
It's for aunts and sisters and daughters and cousins that they get to do that as well, that you get this special gift to pour into others. Like, you can pour into women better than I can. You just can. I'm, I'm not a woman. Surprise. I'm not a woman, but you can pour into women in a way that I don't have the ability to. And that's important. We need that. In Deuteronomy 6, we have this picture of what God would want for his, his family. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen here. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them uh, as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates that the people raising our children would know and understand and worship God and then communicate that to our children all day long, every day, multiple times a day and everything that they do. That's the point. That's what God has designed for his people. They need to be kind, translated as being good. This idea of being kind is living out who God is. And then it says this, and I think this verse has been like so misinterpreted over the years, and I just go, you're not reading it right. It says, submissive to their own husbands. And people say, ah, God wants me to submit to every single man that's ever existed on this planet. No, he doesn't. That's not at all what it just said. Submission to their own husbands. You're like, I don't have a husband. Congratulations. <laughs> You're off. <laughs> like that's, they realize it's only to your husband. Why? To support their husband's leadership role in the family. That's what, that's what they're meant to do, to support the leadership role that God has put in places. As the head. It doesn't mean that they are in charge, that they are the dictator. That's not what it means, that you're supporting them and what God has called them to be, to be the leader that he wants them to be. And so what we have here is this idea is discipling your children, discipling kids, so that the purpose and reason is to give proper testimony to the word of God. People are always looking at you. They're always watching you. They want to see who you are, what you say, and then what you do. They want to know what is public and what is private, and do they match up? And as we read God's word and submit to God's word, we say, Jesus is the Lord of my life, and I will submit to whatever he says in my life, even the hard things, because it gives testimony to the truth of God's word and how it transforms. Younger men, it says, uh, again, another time, self-controlled. Uh, there is, uh, there, if you have been in the office, if you work in the office, if you're on staff, you know that there's this problem that I have. I have a problem. And it, I, I have self-control of many areas of my life, but there is one area that I have very, very poor self-control. It is pastries. I don't know why God showed us that butter and sugar make the greatest thing that's ever existed in life, but a pastry comes in and I cannot stop from eating one. This week, Mark looked at me. He's like, you really have no self-control with pastries. I said, no, stop bringing them. Please, I'm going to be fat real soon if you keep doing that. But younger men, you cannot just go like, I'm going to do whatever I want. There are consequences. We have to have self-control, that we be models of good works, meaning this. In Genesis, we were made in the image of God, that we were made to reflect who God is, how he would respond to things. 
And that the model of good works means that we are an image bearer, a proper image bearer of God in everything that we do. That older men should be teaching that to these younger men. And that these younger men would start to teach, communicating the truths of God's work in everything to everyone. That they would keep talking about who God is and what he's doing. It says that they would have integrity. I've used this definition for years. My kids already know what I'm going to say when it comes to the idea of the definition of integrity, that you do the right thing when no one's looking. Say, we'll do the right thing when people are looking because I want to look good. Oh, I'm so holy. I'm so great. But when no one's looking is when it really is it what you believe. It's, is it who you are? And that's the saying that you have integrity in your heart when it comes to those things. There's dignity, respected by others, because you live a life that is honorable. And that honor is adhering to the word of God. It's funny, we have these movies where it's all about honor, valor, but there's always a code there, isn't there? There's a code in which they walk to. And we can say that person is disciplined and they have honor because they have held to this. They put others first. That's why we do that. This is a sound speech, this idea that our words match our life. It's the very thing he said in verse 16 last week, right? That because they contradicted what they said by what they did. People are looking. It says, so that to disarm your accusers of any accusations, people want to know, is the gospel real in your life? Did it change you? Does it look different than the rest of the world? Your life gives evidence of your salvation. It is not what has earned it or received it. It just shows, do you really believe the gospel and what it's done? Your life will look different. Then he shifts to bond servants and workers. Um, this is the idea of showing others, if you're looking for like a fun tagline. Paul's going to say that not only does it affect your relationship with God and your relationship with uh, others in the church, but it affects where you go, where you serve, where you work. Um, here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zip through this. This is not a verse on God loves slavery. That's not what he's talking about. This is not a, oh, see, the Bible says God loves slavery. That is not what it's saying. That is not what it's talking about. The Bible is not pro-slavery, okay? Bond servants were men or women that would sign up for a designated amount of time to have a job and a place to stay to earn money so that they could actually provide for their family. And so they would get housing and they would just do what their master would say. And then the Bible gives uh, ways to get out of that every seven years. That would end so they wouldn't be trapped and stuck in that situation if they wanted to remove themselves. So that's all that we're talking about here. And so when we look at this, we don't have that kind of thing anymore, but we have something we go to probably five or six times a week, don't we? It's called work. Maybe you think of your boss as a slave master. Maybe you're like, this guy just, I hate this guy, he's the worst. Or this gal, whoever it may be. But what it's saying is, he's saying, how should Christians respond in this situation? And let's say we are talking about slavery. Well, the world's a broken place, isn't it? How should a Christian respond in a broken world, in a broken place in that way? How does a Christian live and respond? It says that you are to be so different than every other person that you could possibly imagine. And that people can't help but asking, why, why are you so good at your job? Why do you care so much? Why do you put in the extra effort? Why do you act in this way? 
according to this, based on how we work as Christians, every employer in the world should be striving for to find Christians to be employed at their business. It's funny how that's not necessarily the case, is it? I'm just going to do enough to get by. That does not sound like what we just read here. I'm going to do the bare minimum so I can get my paycheck. That's not what it's talking about. And he starts to unload on what this individual should look like with where they work and how they respond to those that have authority over them. You start asking some questions, don't you? Do I argue with my employer all the time? Do I complain about my boss to my boss? Do I not do what my employer says because I think my ways are better and smarter than his or hers? I tell people all the time, they're like, my boss wants me to do this. I'm like, are you getting paid? They're like, yeah, I'm all, so who cares? If it's not illegal, who cares? They are giving you money to do a job. They're the ones accountable if it goes wrong. What do you care? Take your check, be happy, put a smile on your face. They're the ones that got to deal with the stress. But I mean, you got to ask him, like, do I give my full potential at work? We know what our full potential is. We know what, we can, what we're capable of. Do you present that? See, Colossians 3 would say, everything you do, do everything unto the Lord. Do you look at your role in your job as someone who actually wants to work as though you're working unto the Lord? Would you work differently if you were working for Jesus? If the answer is yes, you might want to start asking what that means at where you work. Because here's the thing, your employers, they see things, they know, they understand, and you as a Christian are representing Jesus and what he has done in your heart. And it says, so that in everything they may make the doctrine of Jesus all the more attractive, that they would see the truth of the gospel as you work amongst them. Maybe you're asking, like, I don't understand why people that I work with don't think that Jesus is attractive. Have you shown them how it's attractive? Have you shown them what he's done in your life? And I'm not trying to beat you. I'm, I'm literally just replaying my life as a, an employee all my life. I'm like, I failed here. I failed here. I failed here. See, when the gospel is released into the world, it changes everything. It says no to the old way of life and sinful things. It says, this got me in a lot of trouble. So I'm going to let you make the decisions in my life, Jesus. I'm going to let you be the Lord of my life. I'm going to say no to me, and I'm going to say yes to you. It holds tight to what God calls good. It knows it, and then it teaches the truth to others so they can be affected in the same way. See, discipleship is this process that God has given us to grow the church, to continue the church, to the next generation of leaders come up. Look around. As you see younger people realize that is the next generation of the church. Look at them and say, this, are, are we pouring into them? Are we loving them with the God? Are we showing them how the gospel has transformed them? It means that older men are pouring into younger men with the hopes that they will grow in their knowledge and understanding the application of the gospel in every area of their life. Look back. If you're an older, mature Christian, think about who did that for you. Who was the individual who poured into your life? 
You know why they did that? Because they got a verse. They got a whole passage saying, this is important. They're important. Show them who Jesus is and everything. And I have a list of guys in my life that have done that my whole life. I'm so grateful and thankful to each and every one of them. And it says, older women, pour into younger women that they would understand what it looks like and the responsibility and the honor that God has given you to disciple these kids and these women in life. Here's the other thing it does. It honors the elderly. We don't do that anymore, do we? You ever think of like, there's this term that goes around and it's, and it's a negative term. Like someone says, oh, okay, old timer. Okay, old guy. That's not a thing that we're lifting up in the Western culture. We say that and it's because we're actually making a knock at someone. What if we change that? And we started to look at the older people in our congregation as those that God has given us as a blessing. I say all the time that our church is in such a beautiful position with the amount of older, mature, godly men and women that are a part of this church. What a wealth of wisdom and knowledge that we have at our fingertips. And I think that we've done a poor job of tapping into it, to be perfectly honest. As you get older, sometimes we can believe a lot. Well, I'm, I'm not, I can't do anything. I'm not as active. I go to bed early. I go to, you know, I, I eat dinner at three at Denny's and, and I, it's, it's okay. You can go do that. I love you. I, I, I just not as act. Can you sit down and talk with someone? Yeah, you can. Can you sit down and share your life with others? Yeah, you sure can. Can you open up God's word and show how the scriptures apply to our lives and how they transform us into looking like, acting like, speaking like, and living like Jesus Christ? Yeah, you're darn right you can. Proverbs 27, 17 says this. Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. I think the question we have to ask is what are we sharpening them with? This is what we started the entire passage on, isn't it? What do we sharpen them with? Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The only thing worth sharpening our hearts on is the word of God. It's the only thing that can cut to the core of our soul and to our heart that transforms us into the image of God. You know what we need in life? We have both, everybody needs a Paul and a Timothy or a Titus in their life. You need someone pouring into you and you need to be pouring into somebody else. As our cup overflows, that overflowing should go into the lives of others so they would overflow as well. There's always someone older. There's always someone younger. You're like, but Simon, I'm not that mature. There's always someone less mature than you. You may have to go to a different ministry, like with, they're about this old, to find it. That was me. I worked with little kids because I was just a little more mature than them. And I started teaching the things of God. And then as they grew, I grew. And as I grew, I started to teach others. One of the highlights of my weeks is I get to disciple, do discipleship with a guy on Thursday mornings at the crack of dark, and I sit with him and we talk about life and we read the Bible. It is literally one of my favorite times of the week. And sometimes we study God's word and in depth, and sometimes we talk about our lives. And I'm watching him grow 
And I'm so excited to see what God's going to do in his life someday as he becomes the next generation of leaders as well. My question today is this. I got two questions for two groups, and then I will end. Sorry, band, I did it again. Um, if you're older, would you be willing to consider discipling someone? It doesn't have to be this crazy, formal, theological thing. Would you be willing to sit with people and just talk with them about life, hear what they're going through, pray with them, point them to Jesus? And so I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different than we normally do on our contact cards this week. I have no idea how this is going to land. I really don't. Just write on there, I'm willing to disciple someone. I don't care. There's always someone younger. I'm willing to disciple someone. And just put it on there. Would you be willing to step out and trust that God has a purpose for you? That he wants you to invest in his community as that community grows so more would grow? If that's the case, write it on there, drop it in the box in the back, and then we'll, we'll collect those. Okay, second group. If you're younger, do you even think you need this? I can hear it. No. <laughs> you're too loud. Quiet down. Do you need someone that has walked before you? Do you need someone who can explain the dangers of the decisions you're about to make? Do you need someone who has been where you are or is going to be where you are that can help you navigate the difficult roads of life by looking at Scripture? Do you think you may need that as you're starting to pick careers, as you're starting to think about what your future looks like, as you're walking through, how do I interact as a Christian in this world? Do you think you need that? Let me tell you, as an arrogant young man who said no to that, yes, you do. And I found out the hard way because I did not think I needed that in life. The more I realize I need that, the more that God grows me and shapes me and saves me from some of the biggest pains that I ever could have gone through in my life. If you are willing to be discipled, say, I want to be discipled. And my hope is this week is that if you write that on that contact card, if you put it on the QR code, however you want to do it, that we would collect those and we would try to start matching people up to start doing things together. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. I'm going to pray. And we're going to move into a time of communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to talk about discipleship, to talk about who you are and what you do and how you've transformed our lives, that we would encourage each other, that we would fan the flames into each other's lives in such a way that we would see growth take place, that it would always be completely rooted on your word and your word alone. As I look out into this congregation, I see so much potential of older men and women that could pour into younger men and women to show them that your word is true, and how when we submit to it, it changes and shapes our lives for your glory and for our joy. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for this section. We love you. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.